0: Father God, we just come before You and thank You for all that You have done to bring us back into Your fold. For all that You did to pursue us, Father. For all that You did to cleanse us by the sacrifice of Your Son. Thank You for being patient with us, Father, because we do have very little faith. And yet, You help us. And yet, You save us. Father, this morning I pray that You'll move me out of the way, that Holy Spirit, You will speak the words You need to speak, whether they'll be words of comfort or words of conviction. But let the veils of the hearts of those who are here, Father, be lifted, and let us hear what you have to say. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and hope. Amen. So if you're new, welcome. Uh, We go through books of the Bible, basically. We're in Matthew, and uh, if you have the study guide, you'll notice in the next couple weeks, I've changed it all because that's what I tend to do. Uh, So they don't really flow with how we organized it originally, but we are in Matthew 8. Uh, and 23 to 27 is where we're going to go. Now, Matthew uh, devotes chapter 8-9 in a very kind of unique way to confirming Jesus' identity. We've said that Matthew, we talk a lot about the king, Matthew is intending to reveal Jesus as the king. We've seen him as this teacher going through the Sermon on the Mount, proclaiming what the kingdom of God looks like. We've seen him do these amazing miracles, confirming he's got the power of the king, and now we further see him uh getting particular titles. So over the next five weeks, we see different titles that that Jesus is um, ascribed to by different people. Today, He is called Lord by His disciples. He is called Son of God later by demons. He is called Son of David by a blind man. He is called Son of Man and Bridegroom by Himself. And so we're going to break all those down, not today, but over the next couple weeks, to go, who is this Jesus? Because the most important question that anyone can ever answer before the moment they die is, who is Jesus? And the answer to that question, your answer to that question, is going to really dictate exactly how you live every other moment up to the moment you die. Now, early in the chapter, we saw, it's in chapter 8, we saw that crowds, we're, we're gathering around to hear Jesus teach, to, to experience or receive healing from him because he's healing all kinds of diseases and, and, and demon possessions and all kinds of things like that. And so people are, are gathering, large numbers of people. And as the crowd grew, we said that Jesus really isn't interested in growing a crowd. In fact, most of the time he tries to avoid them. And so he instructs his disciples. In fact, it says he gives them orders to get in the boats. Let's go across the Sea of Galilee. And right before, as we saw last week, they get in the boats, two men approach Jesus, and they both declare their desires or even their intentions to follow Him. I'll follow you. I'll follow you. Both men sound pretty genuine, but we learn as we kind of dug in that neither one was truly ready to follow Jesus. One refused to Uh, give up, I guess, what's best described as worldly comfort, and the other refused to give up some of his worldly obligations. One was like, homeless, I don't know. The other was, well, i got to do all these other things, and then I'll be ready to follow you, Jesus. And so we don't know if they ever followed. We don't know if they got in the boat, really, but it seems to be that neither one did, at least at that time. Now, in this same passage in Luke, well, those two disciples came up, the last thing that Jesus told these guys, it's not recorded in Matthew, but in Luke chapter 9, Jesus said this, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Which perhaps describes these guys pretty well. You see, true disciples... Those whom God, through Christ, has called to Himself. Those who've experienced a, com- a compulsion that they can't really even explain. Those who are blind and now see. True disciples don't just think about Jesus. They don't just talk about Jesus. They don't just make promises to Jesus. They follow Jesus very simply. They do exactly what He says without delay and with joy, right? That's what we tell our kids. What's obedience? You do what I tell you completely, without delay, and joy would be nice, right? And so, if we're going to talk about what following Jesus is like, that's what it looks like. Not reluctantly, not, well, at some point I'll obey. And this is obedience of of this nature is not what you do to become a disciple, okay? That's not what we're talking about. This is. What happens to those who become disciples? There's a new desire in their heart. There's a new compulsion. And if they fall flat in their face, they want more than anything to follow Jesus. Tell me where you're going, Jesus. I'm coming. I think one of the most convicting books in the Bible is 1 John. If you want to know if you're a Christian, go read 1 John. Very convicting. One of the verses in it, in the first chapter, says this. By this we know that we have come to know him. Awesome. What is it? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, quote, I know him, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, Jesus rocks, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So when Jesus says, get in the boat, the disciples, get in the boat. They don't ask questions. They don't delay. They get in the boat. Jesus wants his disciples to get in the boat. He doesn't want his disciples, obviously figuratively speaking, to stay on the shore. But here's... The rub of it all, that's Shakespeare. Yes, I used to be an English teacher. Anyone who gets in the boat should expect a storm. They're not experiencing a storm on the shore. If you're going to get in the boat, it's going to get stormy. I grew up on sailboats, okay? Okay. My dad loved sailboats. I now love sailboats. As a kid, I wanted a powerboat. But as an adult, the quiet of the wind and no motor sounds awesome. But in a storm, you really want a powerboat, right? It's scary. It's scary. I think people wrongly believe that, and I I say this wrongly because it's preached often like this. They wrongly believe that a life with Jesus is a life free of chaos. And I would argue that there's no such thing as stormless Christianity. Sorry. Bag, you know, cats out of the bag. There's no such thing as a relationship with Jesus without storms. Storms are part of life in a world that is broken. There's no part of this world that is not broken. Whether you're talking, I mean, you just think about, if you just say this thing, creation's broken, what does that mean? Everything, including people. And if you're going to hang out in a broken world, you're going to experience brokenness, whether you are a believer or a non-believer. The difference, however, when, when someone is changed from the inside out, when someone has a new identity and a new perspective, right, When you go from a blind man to someone who can see, and when you see the world for what it is, it's not that you don't experience storms. It means you understand them and experience them differently. They don't go away for the Christian, but they are experienced differently with Christ. So this passage that we look at here doesn't, Teach us that you know what Jesus is gonna lead you away from the storms. That would be really nice, right? You almost wish like that, would be just like Jesus leads you away from the storms, go and be loving, right? It's not the way it happens. Like if you just want to pause for a second, Jesus leads these guys into a storm. Jesus wouldn't do that. Oh, he does. I think what we begin to see is that it's just actually safer to be with Jesus in the storm than anywhere else. The truth is, though, I think why we're so scared of storms, and we'll talk about this, is that the storm actually ends up not just hurting us, like not just scaring us, but it actually reveals to us what we really put our faith in. That's why storms are so scary. They reveal the truth about us. And a particular truth, and that is, who do we really believe Jesus is? Who do we really believe Jesus is? Because a storm will give the answer. And so I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about a storm that scares, we'll say, right? Scary storm. I want to talk about um, a Lord that sleeps and a word that calms. So let's talk about scary storms. It says in, in Matthew 28, 23, when they got in the boat, the disciples followed him. And Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. Not a little squall. I mean, great storm. So the boat was being swamped by the waves. So don't just think they're sitting on the boat like, hmm, it's getting kind of rough, guys. You know? Like, it's, it's getting big. I find it's curious after... You know, his disciples heard the conversation he had with these two disciples right before they got in the boat. It's an interesting place for Matthew to put this and for it to occur. Perhaps he wants to show the disciples who got in the boat, because what are they thinking? Like, yeah, discipleship costs something, guys. Let's get in the boat, right? I paid my debt. If you're not willing, (laughs) whatever, right? So these guys get in the boat, and maybe Jesus wants to show them, like, look, discipleship is actually... More than just that one time payment, right? that one decision that you make. It's actually a constant decision making life. That our discipleship, our faith, right, although it starts in a moment, if you will, it's never done being refined. Our faith can always be deeper. We can always grow closer. We can always trust Jesus more. We can always bring his lordship into our lives or parts of our lives that we have not relinquished to him. So as the disciples get in, a great storm. I think the word that that Matthew uses is like seismos, which is what, earthquake, right? So it's like, right? So you go like tsunami-sized waves, I just sound scary, right? Tsunami sized waves, just piling in. The boat is filling up. And for anyone who's been in a storm in a boat, maybe you've had this experience. For a lot of you have never been in a boat, which is weird for the Northwest. You don't know what it's like. You think storm, hey, look, it's raining outside. This fire feels great. That's some cocoa, right? But when you're in the midst of the storm and it's it's this is this is scary, it's so scary that don't forget, most likely, Peter and Andrew, James and John, they're in the boat. Who are these guys? Fishermen. They've seen storms before and they're scared. Right? If you're on a ship with a captain and you're like, hey, this is great, huh? This storm's not so bad. And the captain's like, okay, hold on. Right? If the captain's scared, then you might want to be a little frightened. These guys have a real fear of dying, a genuine fear of dying. We're gonna we're gonna die. I don't see how we're gonna get across. And the things about storms, I mean really literally storms, storms typically surprise us. I mean, we can get weather reports and whatnot, but I think the the worst storms are generally unexpected. These guys never saw the storm coming, though many of them were experts. And when the storm came upon them, they were unprepared. They were ill-equipped. And I think that if you obviously make an analogy to life storms, we can predict life storms about as well as these weather guys in Northwest can predict our weather, right? I look at my phone every morning like, hey, oh, it's going to rain. No, it's sunny. Oh, it's going to be sunny. No, it's raining. Like, they don't know. OK? I remember one time there was like, you know they do those winter storm watches, they're like winter storm 2011, like blizzard time, whatever. They have these weird titles for it. I remember one time Steve Pool, you know Steve Pool, right? He got on, because he was like, oh, it's going to be like, you know, mild, whatever. And then it was like the biggest dump in history. And he got on the like 6 o'clock news and apologized. He's like, let me tell you what it's like to predict the weather here and how it's really difficult. I'm like, okay, tell me you get paid tons of money and you can't tell us anything. Fantastic, right? But that's what life storms are like, right? You You can't predict life storms. They just come when you least expect it, and they shake the very foundations of our life. And even if you could predict a storm, I think you would agree that no two storms are alike. They're all different. It's not like, oh, here comes another storm. I'll we'll just endure the same way it did last time. They're different. They, they come in different waves and, and, and different ways, and, they, and they, they affect different parts of us. They never come from the same direction. They never look the same. They never last the same amount of time or, or even, as I said, affect everyone the same way. And there's all kinds of storms you think about. There's storms of just doubt. There's storms of just really destruction, of great loss. There's storms of great sorrow. There's storms of temptation. There's storms of poverty. We saw that in the recession where suddenly everyone didn't have everything they thought they had. Unexpectedly. There's storms of uncertainty. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I've got like four decisions to make and I don't know which one is better, worse, whatever. Then there's storms of criticism. I'd be like, what did you do? Why are you doing that? All kinds of storms. And one thing's for certain that all these storms, though we can't predict them and though they're never the same, strike the same way twice, I think that we can say that storms scare us. Our fears, as I said, of those storms and in the storms reveal exactly who our Savior is. Because I think that we worship what we fear losing most. If you think about what do I fear losing most, if that's not named Jesus, then there you go. There's your Savior. And it doesn't mean you should never fear losing a child or fear losing something that's, that's good. These things are good, but when those things that are good become ultimate and supreme and primary, and the thing that dictates whether I actually have despair or joy, and it's not Jesus, there's a problem. And how do you know that? Well, I think you know you have a false savior of approval when you don't just get discouraged by a storm of criticism, you get devastated and deeply depressed. Or... When you don't just get irritated by a storm of disobedience in your kids, right? Because storms come. Amen, parents, right? Storms come. Like, what is going on? No one wants to obey, right? The question is, how do you react to that storm? Is it just irritation or disappointment? Or do you get abusive and angry in order to maintain your control? Because that's really what you worship control. Or... You don't just get troubled over a storm of bills that you think you can't pay. You get totally insecure and worried and you even start making compromises so that you can pay these bills because nothing is more fearful than you to not have money to pay the bills have the lifestyle you think you have to have. I think storm, we're just they reveal our false idols, what we what we worship, because they begin to be threatened typically. But I think much like wilderness, remember we preached on wilderness several weeks ago wilderness is in itself is not the enemy but the enemy comes in wilderness and I think it's the same with the storm storms themselves aren't the enemy but the enemy comes in the midst of the storm and begins to tempt you and accuse you and break you but as I said Jesus is the one that leads these guys into storms and he could have stopped the storm before they got in the boat like okay be calm as we go across and they go across but Jesus wants them to go into the storm. How does it make you feel to know that Jesus wants to lead you into storms? At first you might want to go, that's mean, right? Maybe the better question is, what, why, what, what do you want me to learn? He wants his disciples to learn something. I think he actually wants his disciples to change. See, for most of us, we would like to stay exactly the way we are. Because for most of us, we think we rock, okay? For most of us, I mean, we like changes in our life, like, I wish I had a different face, right? Or I wish I had more money, right? Like, there's changes we want, but at the core of our character, most of us go, "Eh, it's pretty good. Not so bad. Jesus thinks otherwise, okay? Especially in regards to our faith. Because we actually, many of us believe that our trust in the Lord is pretty good. But when the foundation, that's not Jesus, gets knocked out from under us, we realize very quickly that our faith is perhaps out of alignment. Storms do that. And the bottom line is Jesus loves us way too much to leave us the way we are. He loves us way too much to leave us the way, dare I say, he loves us so much he wants to push us into storms. So that we can change. Because, and I think, especially those who have had a lot of life experience, and I don't necessarily mean just because you're old. I mean, you, you've experienced a lot in life. I think you would agree that true growth and change rarely comes in calm seas. Rarely. And because Jesus is more interested in my holiness than he is my happiness, he's going to take me into some storms. Because it may not make me happy, but it will make me holy, which will make me joyful. Which is very different than happiness. So, verse 24, let's see what happens. He says, and behold, we've got a Lord that sleeps here, right? There arose a great storm in the sea, the boats being swamped by waves, and then, verse 25, oh, I'm sorry, by the waves, and he was asleep. Verse 25, and they went and woke him up, Jesus saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Okay, so we've got the storm that scares, and now we'll talk about the Lord that sleeps. The enemy's goal in the midst of the storm is not just to break you. It's not just to hurt you. That's just a nice benefit. The intent of the enemy in the storm is to do whatever it takes for you to break your trust in the Lord. And contrary to popular belief, a lot of this is, is, is preached by Jesus will still whatever storm you're in. I don't believe that. In fact, I think sometimes he mixes it up a little bit more. Okay. It is to say that I think the heart of this is not about stilling the storms of our lives, right? It's about for, it, it's the fact that in the midst of the storm, we forget that Jesus is the Lord of the storm period that's what the enemy wants to do we talk about breaking trust it's really breaking your understanding of who Jesus truly is denying who he is questioning who he doubting who he is if you're in a storm right now that's what the enemy wants you to do wants you to begin to doubt that Jesus is who he says he is that Jesus did what he said he did The silence of God and the silence of Jesus makes us very tempting. See, all the disciples, think about this. They're bailing the boat, okay? They're, like, all crying out for their mommies. They're all scared, like, we're all going to die. Like, they're, they're freaking out a little bit. And Jesus is taking a nap on the stern cushion in the back of the boat. Right? Like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> what the, Right? They've just started following Jesus. They've seen him do miracles, but still they're going, what is going on here? This doesn't make sense. Here's what happens in a storm, right? First you begin to fear, and your fear, I believe, leads you to accuse, namely God. Check out what happens here, right? Because in the midst of of this storm, right, what happens? We begin to go, God, where are you? Where are you at? But it goes deeper than that. The Gospel of Mark, again, recounts the same story. And listen to what he writes. Mark four thirty-five 35 says, On that day when the evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. So there were several boats. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And what do they say? Verse 38, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They had to put that point, right? He's on a couple pillows, laying back. It says, They woken. What do they say to him? Teacher, not save us, we're perishing. Do you not care? Do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care what's going on here? You must not care about me, God. Oh, I've never said that. I bet you thought it in the midst of a storm. See, we know intellectually we shouldn't be scared. Okay, I know I shouldn't be scared, but man, we just can't take our eyes off the waves. We just can't take our eyes off the waves. And 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 when you begin to look at the waves only, when you just like still, right? My dad always taught me like when I always get seasick. Look at the horizon. Look at the horizon. Eat some saltine crackers. Look at the horizon right? Never look at the waves. Because you look at the waves, and that's all you begin to see. Whoa, that's a big wave. Whoa, that's, that's a lot of water. Whoa. And all you see is that, and all you can sense is the noise of the wave. In fact, I was reading Psalm 32, and he said an interesting thing. It said that it's actually hard to find God in the rush of the great waters, It's not that God can't be found. It's that there's so much noise there. Just looking at the storm and you're overwhelmed and it's scary. And in that noise, you can't hear God. And you begin, I think, to believe God isn't saying anything. And God is silent and you begin to accuse him. I think you accuse him of three things. Because he's quiet. He's sleeping. One is the silence of God begins to mean to you that God just, he must not know what's going on. He must not know what's going on in my life. We're tempted to believe that God is not all-knowing as we once thought, at least, or hoped. We're tempted to believe that unless we tell Him, unless we scream it out to Him, God doesn't know what we're experiencing. He must not know what we're feeling. He must not know what we're thinking. That God is actually surprised. (gasps) A storm! I was not even paying attention! We begin to think that about God. He must not know. But then it gets worse from there, right? Okay, let's just assume that he, he knows. Whoa, that's even a worse thought. He knows now he must not care, like these disciples said. Because if he does know, then it makes that a horrible thought, that he actually knows how much fear I'm experiencing right now. He actually knows how much pain and frustration and despair, and he could stop it and is not. He must not care about me maybe he enjoys my suffering we're tempted to believe that God knows about the storm but he won't calm it because he's either indifferent towards it or maybe worse he's evil (laughs) watch this right But then it gets worse and go, okay, well, maybe he does know. Maybe he does even care. But if the storm isn't calm, then maybe he's actually not in control of anything. Maybe he doesn't have the power to do anything about it. I mean, how, how big is your God? How big is Jesus? And by bigness, I don't mean like, oh, he can do these big things. Sometimes it's all the little small things that we think God doesn't care about or isn't interested in or doesn't have the power to control in our lives. I mean, He he's all-knowing and he understands what to do and he's all-loving and he is willing to do it, then if the storm doesn't go away, he must be weak. And I better take over and do something, Right? Well, if God's going to be weak, I'm going to be strong. I'll fight this storm, and you drown. That's how that story ends. I think nothing causes us to question the extent of God's rule more than when he doesn't calm the storm in the way or the timing that we want. And it's at these moments that I think we're tempted, as I said, to question the very character of Jesus. So, the disciples see Jesus asleep on the cushion, in the back of the boat, and they're like, doesn't he, doesn't he know? Doesn't he care? Can he, can he do something? And they're staring at him like, how can he sleep so peacefully? And maybe the thought should be, yeah, how can he sleep so peacefully? What does he know that we don't know? What does Jesus know that we don't know? What knowledge does he have that takes him beyond the knowledge of this storm? Because I can't stop thinking about the storm. That's big. That's painful. That's dark. And you're like, Jesus, why aren't you upset about this? Why aren't you freaking out? One of my favorite psalms, and I, this is totally reading into the text, and I don't think Jesus is necessarily doing this, but I wonder sometimes when a storm like this is going up, if some of the psalms are coming to mind. If Jesus is like laying there with one eye open, <laughs> you know. But just thinking. Because Jesus is not faking it. He's really at rest. He's really not worried. He's really not fearful. Jesus knows who he is. And he knows who his father is. It's the disciples that don't know who Jesus is or who his father is. Psalm 46. Love this psalm. It says, God is our refuge and strength. And I wonder if this is going through Jesus' mind. It's totally imaginary, but you know, maybe. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Where's the mind? On heaven, where God is. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How He has brought storms, dare I say, desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still. Notice it's not. Be still. The storm will be calmed. Doesn't say that. Be still and know. I am God. Our mind doesn't need to go on the hope that the storm goes away, but on the unchanging character of God himself. That God is good. That God is loving. That God is all-knowing. That God is in control and sovereign of all things. Jesus puts more faith in the unchanging character of God than he does in the ever-changing character of the seas around him. And he keeps his eyes solely focused on that. So we got why Jesus sleeps. And lastly, we talked about the word that, that calms. How does Jesus save us from the storm? See, I think it's easy for us to trust God knows and cares and controls when the seas are calm. Oh, clearly God's in control because everything's wonderful. That's our thought process, honestly. Honestly. And when things are not wonderful, we begin to question those things. What a thought to be able in the midst of the storm to say, God knows, God cares, God's in control. But when the storm comes, his disciples freaking out, they wake up Jesus, what did Jesus say? First question, why are you afraid? Right, it seems kind of like a dumb question. Like imagine, the, the boat is sinking Water's going up. Waves are huge. You're like, Jesus, wake up. And he's like, why are you guys freaking out? Hello, right? They assume he doesn't know. And then it goes further because Jesus is actually asking, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? What does he say? The second question, he connects, I think, fear with their faith. And he says, oh, you have little faith. Why are you afraid, oh, you have little faith? Fear and faith are these these companions. It's kind kind of weird the way they work together. I like that he says, it's not that they have no faith. They just have a little bit. The truth is, I think they actually have a lot of faith. They just put it in the wrong place. They have great faith in the storm. They have great faith in being able to predict what the storm is going to do to them. This experience is going to lead to this, and now I'm going to fear that, which hasn't happened yet, but I know it's going to lead there. They put actually very little faith in Jesus. But they have great faith, just in the wrong place. But what is so awesome, okay, because I hate to break it, there's no one here with big faith. Well, all the big faith people stand up. Don't, you look like a fool, okay, right? There's no big faith. But Jesus, though he says you have little faith, he helps them. It's not like he goes, oh, you have little faith, goes back to sleep. Deal, boys. He didn't say that. He doesn't wait for their faith to be stronger. He acts so that it will be. Jesus helps even if our faith fails in the storm. And it will. How do I know that? Well, let's not forget. These are the guys who have been walking along with Jesus as he heals the blind, cures leprosy, raises from the dead, and they're like, what's going on, right? If those guys are freaked out, and they're walking right next to Jesus, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be freaking out at some point. I'm fairly confident of that. But how do we find that calm before the storm calms? Well, here's, well, we'll bring it to a close. It's not enough to know that Jesus quieted some storm on the Sea of Galilee. That's great. But that's not enough for us. We have to actually see that there is a bigger storm. A bigger storm that Jesus faced for us. A bigger storm that Jesus went through for us. A bigger storm that makes all of the storms that we may experience in life very small in comparison. See, the storm of the cross, we'll call it, reveals that God knows. Reveals that God cares reveals that God is always in control of this world. Every last detail. This is the real storm that I think Jesus is preparing His disciples for. See, Jesus endured a storm unlike we will ever experience because He was the Son of God in human flesh. And so when He experienced a storm of accusation, that's a storm from people He created with tongues that are His. He endured a storm of accusation unlike we'll ever know. A storm of betrayal by some of his closest friends. A storm of abandonment from his family. A storm of abuse. A storm of injustice. A storm of ridicule. A storm of beatings. A storm of shame. All leading to a storm of death all while God was in control. How do I know that? One of the coolest verses in Scripture. Peter's sharing after they've been released from prison in Acts 4, and check out what he says. He's trying to talk about a storm. He says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Basically, don't preach anymore. And they said, sorry, we got to do what God says. Verse 24 says, when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, sovereign, in control of everything. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, right? They built a storm against Jesus. Who was it? For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your servant, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, everybody. Verse 28 To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's awesome. I mean, seriously. What did he say? Gentiles, my tools. People of God, my tools. Romans, my tools. It was all working together. All these storms were mine to do everything that I wanted them to do, which led to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins, which led to salvation for me, for those or anyone who believes that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what that led to. Storms are not accidental. Storms are not outside of God's control. God is not surprised by storms. He's in the middle of it all. And it's scary awesome. Jesus endured the cosmic storm, the infinitely huge storm of God's wrath so that we could be free to endure any earthly one. I think so much so that this not only do we have the strength to endure some of the storms that surprise us, it's just come upon us, all those storms I talked about that come into our lives, but I actually think that when you understand who God is, we understand who Jesus is, you will actually follow Jesus into storms you see coming. Whether it be hard conversations with relations, whether it be confronting, false teaching, all kinds of things that can happen. Wherever it's harder to do right, and it's easier to do wrong. Following Jesus into that storm, you're like, dude, Jesus got this. Boom, I'm diving in. That's a hurricane. I know, let's go, right? The truth is, when you understand there's someone who's gone before you and someone who goes with you, you don't fear Our hope is ultimately, though, not in that the storm will cease. It's this. Ready? This is awesome. I think I stole this from Piper, but I'm going to go with it, right? It's that even if the storm takes me down, in whatever way you think that means, even if the storm takes me down, even if the storm takes his disciples down, guess what? They go down with Jesus. They go down with Jesus. What else do you need? The Bible says that he arose and he rebuked the winds with the sea and there was a great calm. And the men marveled and said, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Jesus rebukes the earth, right? He speaks to the earth, causing his disciples to say, who the snarf is this guy? Yes, I used to snarf. Who is this guy, right? So what is the word that calms the storm? I'll tell you what the word is not. It's not, this too shall pass, right? You heard that one? This storm, don't worry, this too shall pass. Or another popular one, this is purposed for good. Though both may be true, and I think they are, it may not pass for a while. And you may never learn the good that it was purposed for. The word that calms the storm is simply this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of all of creation. Every little detail and aspect of your life that you think God doesn't care about or know about, He is Lord and in control of. He is Lord over every kind of person. Lord over your finances. Lord over where you live. Lord over what you eat and drink. He is Lord over your families. Lord over your jobs. Lord over your marriages. There is nothing, anything at all that does not fall under the lordship, care, knowledge, and control of Jesus Christ. That's the word. You know what he stood up and said? I'm Lord. Sit down and be quiet. See? And if the Lord can still the raging seas of the earth, I'm pretty sure he can take care of me at my crappy job. Right? How big is your God? Rest in his word. Jesus is Lord of all. He knows and he cares and he's in complete control. And one day, guess what? His calming of the seas reminds us that He is going to restore everything perfectly, even every little detail of creation like the water to complete beauty and perfection. That day is coming. There's no such thing as stormless Christianity. It's the only kind there is. We don't avoid storms. We experience them differently close with remembering this if you guys have ever read the book of James there's an interesting passage in there I thought would be curious for us to think about he says storms are going to come trials are going to come and he says they build you they change you they grow you right and he, then he goes well ask for wisdom and it's not wisdom like so you can get out of the storm it's wisdom so that you can understand what is happening to you so you can trust that okay God you've got this and he says something interesting. He says, "If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by wind." Isn't that curious? The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by wind. See, the one who doubts is the one who never stops taking their eyes off the storm. But guess what? If you keep your eyes on the storm too long, you become like the storm. What's that mean? You become a wave with no purpose, no direction, no rest. You're driven side to side. You're tossed up and down. You kind of just wander through life figuring out because you can't take your eyes off the storm. All said and done, take your eyes off the stinking storm and look at Jesus. Jesus. Stop being distracted by the noise of the storm and listen for the voice of Jesus, who isn't absent, who isn't unaware, who isn't weak. When Jesus says, Let the seas be still, let Him speak to your heart and just say, Let your heart be still. Let your heart be still. And we take communion every Sunday to remind our hearts to be still, because we all come to the table with whatever things are hitting us this week and have been hitting us or going to hit us next week. And you need to be reminded of the cross because the cross shows you God knows, God cares, God's in control, and that all storms, no matter the size, are not meaningless. That God has you. We take communion a little bit differently here. We will sing two songs. We'll allow you to get to the elements for uh, your family. If you're the head of a household, Uh, We just ask for you to come and get elements for your family to serve them communion. If you are single or or, uh, a single mom or or a single parent, then you come and get get it for yourself and for family as well. And then we, for two songs, sit and meditate on all that God has done, praising Him for stilling the storm that's in our hearts so we don't have to be scared of the storms that are in the world. And then we take it together as a family.